We've been looking um, for the last uh, few weeks at um, what it means to live fruitfully um, on, in the places where we find ourselves, on our front lines. What does it look uh, like? What does God ask of us? What's possible? And um, we're looking at a series of things that we feel is sort of like, it's not a list of things to do, but it's kind of like what sort of life do we, are we shaped as? And then what's possible? What's possible? What, what does God delight in? And this isn't about how old you are. It's not really about your situation. It's about you. There's kind of like never a moment where God says, um, I made a mistake in calling you. There's never a moment where God says, you're surplus to requirements. Your situations will change and your, your sort of capacities will change. But there's never a moment where God says, I can't use you. And part of being a Christian and part of worship, I think, is the moment where we come together and we kind of say to God again and again and again, here I am, here I am. And, you know, some folks sort of will say that relatively easily. But for others of us, it's, it's more difficult, isn't it? Because it's like, here I am. And you kind of want to say it, and it's not much, is it? And God never says that about you. God never says that about you. Wherever you bring us an offering, he goes, that's fantastic. And so it's out of that sort of posture, it's out of that sort of tone that we want to think through, well, what might God want to do around you? And we've come to the one where we talk about molding culture, about changing situations, about bringing out the God colours of the situations we find ourselves in. What does that look like? Um, what we did together was we began by looking at those first three, modelling godly character making good work. And last week we looked at ministering grace and love and what did that look like? And I suggested that it's about consistency. And then we're going to move to the ones that take a little bit more courage. About molding culture, about changing the way things are done around here. A messenger of the gospel and a mouthpiece for truth and justice. Culture can be thought of as in a very complicated way. There is a, I, I think this is an urban legend, but it's a good story, so let's go with it. That the Pope sent some of his delegation about 20 years ago to a conference uh, to meet with uh, some of the, uh, the other Catholic leaders in the UK and, uh, and some of the Anglican leaders in, in, in the UK. And they went to Liverpool. And they were thinking about what does it look like to address the culture of a city? And um, when the papal delegation went back to meet uh, the Pope, uh, he asked them what they'd learned. And uh, the papal delegation said, culture is the way they do things in Liverpool. Which is <laughs> kind of like culture is just the way things happen around your way. Those of you that are in work situations, you know that your work situation has a certain culture. Our church has a certain culture. And if you are visiting us and you're from a different church, you will have noticed things that we no longer notice. And they'll stand out to you like, oh, gosh, I wonder why. 
And for us, it's like, oh, we do that? Really? Oh, we didn't realize. Because it's just part of our culture. Your family has a culture. It's kind of like, if I came to your house, I would notice the things that you don't notice. If you came to mine, you would notice things. The way you refer to one another, the, thing, the way, if you've got children, the way you talk about them and to them, create a culture. And we're all in that mix. And what I want to think about this morning is, what does it look like for us to affect the culture for the cause of God? This is sort of like a core definition for me that we keep coming back to. A disciple is someone learning to live the way of Jesus in their context at this moment. That's your fundamental calling. What does it mean to learn the way of Jesus in your context at this moment? When we spoke about work, we looked at those questions, and some of you might remember if you were here, sort of trying to address those questions together. We looked at the whole creation for redemption and God's ultimate desire to restore all things. And we asked, well, what's God's purpose for your life? What's broken around you? And then that question, what can I do to change the brokenness. And wherever you are, whatever context you think about, you will be aware of aspects of brokenness. And sometimes the brokenness causes so much stress and so much pain that your desire would be to get out. And sometimes you can and many times you can't. And the question is, What does God ask of you in the midst of that? One of the the things I believe to be true is, it almost sounds like a cliche, God knows where you are and he's placed you there and he's placed you there for a purpose. And as long as you can, you're being asked to play your part. It may not be the most comfortable place in the world. It may not be the place you would have chosen for yourself. It may not be the situation you would long for. But God knows you're there and God has placed you there. And as long as you are there, he has a purpose for you to fulfill. What does it mean to act? Well, it will depend on the power you have. Depend on the position you have. Some of you have a position that actually gives you enormous power. And actually, to those of you that much has been given, much will be demanded. How did you use your position? Well, and some of you have got hardly any power, positional power anyway. And yet, you're still called to ask God, what difference can I make by being here? Wherever here is. One of the when I've worked with churches and helped them think about um, change, I've used that language of a one-degree shift. Can you make a one-degree change? It came came from a a compass idea. And the idea is that a one-degree on a compass, the the difference is tiny here, but if you keep on going in the same direction, you'll end up in a very different place. It's massive here, but very small here. And the question really for us is, What are the small changes that you can do that would actually make a big difference down the line? What's God asking of you? The problem is, 
for many of us, we're kind of not far off from, we want things to change and then we try something and it doesn't seem to change and then we decide it's all pointless. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's all rubbish. And so we get disheartened. Came across this tweet this week. <laughs> I kind of like it. You're not a failure. You're just impatient. You just don't live with the one degree shift long enough. And so we go, we sort of go through these ups and downs of we want to make a change and then nothing happens and, and it seems to be pointless and then we pull back. Actually, you're not a failure. You're just impatient. What does it look like for you to make the difference where you are? If you've got a Bible, will you turn with me to Matthew 13 and verse 24? So this is in a context of Jesus telling parables about what life is like when the kingdom of God breaks in, when God's at work. In fact, where it says the kingdom of heaven is like, uh, you might just want to sort of paraphrase that. This is what it's like when God's at work. And um, this is Jesus speaking in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Can I just really emphasize when that language of the kingdom of heaven, this has got nothing to do with the place where you go when you die. All right? It's not that. What's happening is in Luke's gospel, they'll use the language the kingdom of God. And Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven. And what people assume is going on because Matthew's writing for a Jewish congregation where they don't use, the, they won't say God. In fact, if you read some Jewish writings, they just have G underscore D, you can't, it's like too holy. So he uses a sort of a paraphrase word, a kingdom of heaven. Now the problem is when we look at that, we think, oh, this is about when you die. No, 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 it's got nothing to do about when you die. The kingdom of heaven, here. This is what it looks like when God's at work, here. It's like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat. And went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed ears, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them all up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Do you get the picture? Can you see it? It's a simple picture. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all seeds... Yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke 
all these things to the crowd in parables. He didn't say anything to them without using the parables. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And then just wonderfully, then he left the crowd and he went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds and the field. It's like, just what were you going on about, Jesus? <laughs> it's a great story, but didn't really quite get it. Three little parables, three little stories to say, this is what it's like when God's at work. Firstly, it's like someone goes in and they plant all this good stuff and then the weeds come. And what you thought was it was going to be brilliant. And it ends up not being brilliant. What are you going to do? Or it's like, it's like a woman. It's like a, a little mustard seed. And it feels so small and so inadequate. But you plant it. And if you give it time, it grows into a tree. And then the birds come. And they sort of settle there. Kind of an interesting thought about whether farmers would want birds to be in the fields, but that's a different question, perhaps. In other words, it disrupts things. And then this woman, she makes bread, and she knows that you just need a little bit of yeast, but if you put the little bit of yeast in, it affects the whole, and you get bread. That's what the kingdom of God's like. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like... Small things, things that look insignificant, things that you could overlook, things that you don't think really matter much. How many of you, I don't know how many of you make bread these days. It's kind of like one of those things that we all say, we ought to make bread. And then we go, no, it's just easier to buy a loaf, isn't it? But I, 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 I've not really been involved in this side of life, really. But I... I can imagine, I can imagine thinking, because I know what I'm like. I know, because I cook other stuff, that sometimes I get to the end of a recipe and I realise I've left stuff out. And then I either decide it, it can all bung in at the end anyway, or, much more likely, I don't think it's that important. And Maggie will say, this tastes okay, but... And I get, well, there, was, there were other things that were, it just didn't seem that insignificant, really. Uh, we just sort of left it out. It would be easy to imagine making bread and you go to all that effort and you do all the kneading and you've got all this stuff going on and you go, oh, this yeast is so small, it's hardly bothering with. And you can make bread like that, but I think you end up with crackers. <laughs> which I think, I, I'm, I'm, at the, I'm at the very edge of my limit of awareness now, but I think you end up with crackers. And I think that's always disappointing when you, what you thought you'd get was a raised loaf. And it's all because you didn't think that little bit of yeast was significant. That's what it's like when God's at work. When you're involved in helping make a difference where you are, Jesus says, it'll not be perfect. We just want to do something and make it really right. And Jesus says, no, it's like the guy who sows the seed and the wheat does come, but an enemy has come. And frustratingly, at the same time, it's almost comical, isn't it? You can almost imagine. How would you feel if you were doing this? Like if you were sowing your seed in your allotment or in your garden, and then your neighbor watches this and thinks, 
tonight's the night. And uh, the, while you say, I'm exhausted after a day in the garden, your neighbour's out there putting the weeds in. That'd be a bit annoying. It'll not be perfect. Jesus says, let God sort it out. It'll look insignificant. It's the small mustard seed, but it will bring change. It'll be ordinary. It'll be the yeast, but it will affect everything. That's what it's like when God's at work. I was thinking about where I've seen this. And I was thinking even about times when I've tried it. We met the guy who worked in a, a, a big science lab. And um, all the, these people worked in silos. They all were in their little cubicles. And uh, relationships weren't great because everybody was sort of like just concentrating on their own thing. And what this scientist decided to do was on a Friday, they'd bring a cake in. Uh, at 11 o'clock because what they worked out scientifically was that if you bring a cake in at 11 o'clock on a Friday all the other scientists will come out and um, they started to gather and have coffee together just for 15 minutes and they kept doing this for a few weeks and then someone said well shall I bring cake next time and someone else brought it in just a really small thing but in a place where there wasn't very much community that person just decided, actually, I think I could create community here. I think it only cost me a Sainsbury's cake. You might have seen on YouTube the story about the teacher who shakes the hands of the pupils before they go into the class. It's a viral YouTube film. But you hear about teachers who make a difference in their classroom. Can't change the school. I can change what goes on in this room. Met the business leader who wasn't senior management in his firm, but he decided that he would talk to his senior leadership team about pay and conditions because he didn't think it was fair because the differentials were so big between the ones who got paid the most and the ones who got paid the least. And he said, I can make a difference here. Did you read about the guy who owns Richer Sounds? Became a Christian midlife. And Richer Sounds, he's, he's, he's married, he's not got children. And he's given his company back to the employees. Everybody who's worked there gets £1,000, got a £1,000 bonus for every year they worked there. And they were invited to take over the company. He said, because actually, it's been great fun, but I want to give it back. That's a big change. But you've got people around, Christians around who are going, in my context, what could I do to make a difference that would actually demonstrate something of what God's like? Every time you try something like that, you're going to feel a bit foolish. Every time you try something like that, you're going to feel a bit vulnerable. It's only a small thing, but that's the point. A few years ago, 
I was thinking about birthdays in our own family. And you know those big birthdays or the important birthdays when you get the whole family around. And um, so I decided what we would try for one of them, and it was the first time we'd done it, was uh, I just asked people in this extended family, could we say something nice about the person whose birthday it is? And it's kind of like, why, why did I want to do that? Well, because in, in my family, I just wanted a culture of encouragement. I wanted a culture of approval. I wanted a culture of thanksgiving. And I'm, I'm conscious of, I hope someone's not going to muck this up and say something sarcastic. <laughs> I hope someone, and the truth is, even in my extended family when we were doing that, I felt a little vulnerable because it felt like... <gasps> You just lay yourself out on the line a little. It's not a big deal, but I think this is what the kingdom of God's a bit like. I wonder what it would look like for you in your family. Small change that actually would lead to something new. Or in your workplace, a small change that would lead to something new. Every time you do it, you're going to feel a little vulnerable. But I wonder what it would look like. What does it look like on your street? We're new on our street, and I'm conscious that in our street it doesn't look like neighbours spend a lot of time together, although one of my neighbours nearly knocked me over the other day as I was running. Um, we would have got to know each other then, but as it was, we just... Um, well, she just gesticulated at me, actually. That's why I'm... It's not my fault. I was just on the pavement. Um, which is the conversation that was going on in my head. And, um, but it's kind of like, what's the small change that we make that in where you live goes, actually, we could make a difference here? What's it look like for you? The last thing I really want to say is this. It's not about you coming up with brand new ideas that just for the sake of it. It's actually an overflow of who you are. This is the slide I used on the first sermon in this series. This fruit of the spirit. This recreating of who you are. And everything that happens is an overflow of these gifts that you offer over time because they've been offered to you over time. The love, joy, peace, the patience, kindness, goodness, the faithfulness, gentleness, and the self-control that actually over time shape who you are. I wonder what God's asking of you. And I wonder what you're going to do about it. I want to finish with one parable. I'll play the parable. We're going to watch film. Play the parable and then I'll come and just say one or two last things. It's a film that I think some of you might have seen before. It's certainly done the rounds, and um, it became very well known, but it felt like it fitted, and I'll explain why after we've played the film. exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades. A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. 
And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. That the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. that before. There were 31 wolves introduced into that uh, national park. And um, if you do a Google search for it, you'll find that um, almost as soon as that film was made um, a few years ago, people started to argue about it. And some people said, it's too simple, too simplistic. It's not like that. 
took more than that. And then, as often happens, as more and more people got involved in the conversation, where the conversation seems to be now is scientists go, it wasn't quite as simple as that, but it did include all of that. And it made me think, your offering alone might not change everything, but it'd be a part of something that just changed everything. And these wolves, they didn't go out of the way, they didn't enter the Yellowstone National Park to say, we are going to change the course of rivers. Lads, let's start by eating the deer. <laughs> they just did what wolves do. And that's your calling. You don't need to change the world. You just need to take ownership for the bit of the world that you've been given. You don't need to change national policy on anything. You just need to take ownership of which bit of the world have you been given. Where you live, the family you have, the workplace you're involved with, your friendship groups. Which bit of it are you going to go, God, that's mine. And you don't need to set out with a grand strategy, but you do walk in going, God, I'm going to be who I am here, who you're making me to be. Would you please give me insight into the change I can make? I wonder whether, Ian and the band, whether you could come back for a moment and just play gently for us something that we won't sing to initially, but what we'll do... I just want to give some space, really, and some time for you to think. I want you to think about, number one, what's, what's the place or what's the arena that you go, God, that's, that's mine? What do you have responsibility for? Because unless you own the responsibility, if you know that's where I've been placed, God, that's where it begins. This is where you've put me. And then the second question is, what do you want me to do? And uh, just while these guys play, why don't you ask, just think about those two questions, where you are. Just think about and allow, allow God to influence your mind. Allow God to drop into your mind which is the place that he's asking you to take responsibility for? For some of you, it'll be really easy and you're there already. And for others of you, it's like, I don't know. I don't know what God is asking of me. Well, this is why we ask, Lord, will you show us? And for some of those places, you've been there so long that you are now part of the culture. It's like you just go along with it all. It's like being a part of a family. We just do it. We're always like this. And perhaps the question is, Lord, in the midst of this situation, how can I be different? What are you asking of me? The kingdom of God is like a farmer who plants seed. The kingdom of God 
is like a woman who uses yeast. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who plants, like a gardener who plants a mustard seed. What's the small one degree shift you can make? thinking about stuff that you could perhaps change or you could do and perhaps what's important for you is that you say Lord I am going to do it and not just stay in the realm of good intention but actually put it into practice Father God would you help us to own the places where we are those situations in life that we find ourselves in the ones that bring us great joy and the ones that are a challenge Lord we own them and we say yes help us on the days when we want to run away from them and find something easier Lord help us to be faithful to the places you've called us Lord, help us to know what to do, how to make the small changes that actually will have an ongoing impact. Help us to know what to say, what to do, what new thing to do. Give us insight, we pray, Lord. The Bible says, if you lack wisdom, then ask, and the Father will give it you. Lord, that's where some of us are today we're just asking Lord what's the wisdom of what to do Lord will you give us the wisdom we need we pray in the name of Jesus